If you want to know what a people think, listen to their music. If you want to know what a people loves, look at their entertainment. You consider as a culture what we sing about, what we consume through entertainment, it reveals a lot about what we enjoy. Sometimes when you're a part of a culture, you don't necessarily recognize the things that are celebrated as much as if you were to go to a different culture, say, Middle Eastern culture, an African culture, Southeast Asia. You look at those cultures, you see what they sing about, what they, what they enjoy as far as entertainment. And I say all this because as a as a culture here in America, I believe we have an obsession with this idea of redeeming things. We like taking things that are broken and fixing them. And consider just the plethora of television shows built around that premise. You know, the fixer-uppers of the world, right? Entire Stations are built around this idea of taking a broke-down home that really needs to be pushed in and redeeming it, making it glorious, right? And our, we stand there with our eyes glued to this sort of redemption that is something old, something worn out, is renewed. Of course, one could comment on all of the makeup that is sold in America and the cause, uh, all the cosmetics that are used to take something old, try to make it look new again. And in all of that work, we recognize there is this innate desire in us to take something that's been thrown in the trash and redeem it. Something unwanted, broken down, ready for the trash heap and restoring it, making it new again. Not only that, we love to hear stories about broken people who've been restored, who've been renewed. The the drug dealer turned disciple, right? The, The once prostitute turned into one who heralds the glorious name of Jesus. But why, deep down, whether we're religious or irreligious, whether we go to church or we're de church, why is it that deep down inside there's something attractive to you and I about redeeming things? Friends, I believe the Bible tells us that we are drawn to such stories because deep down we know that this world isn't what it should be. We recognize because God created us, that things aren't right, things are broken, things are wrong. Rust and decay are an invasion into God's good creation. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but the Apostle Paul says, we ourselves are groaning. We're frustrated by the brokenness around us. We groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, one could say the story of the Bible is the story of God redeeming a people for his own possession. That God had chosen a people and he said, these are my people and I'm going to fix them. They're broken and I'm going to make them right. Why are we drawn? Because deep down we know that things are not how they should be. And we want to fix it. We want to fix what's broken because of all, under all the layers of sin, our flesh knows that this world isn't right. And of course, scientists and philosophers and educators have, have all sought to apply some means to fix what's broken. But as Christians, we recognize that the only fix for this really, really bad problem is Jesus. That's what we want to think about this morning in our text. Now just to remind you where we've gone, uh, we've been over the last several weeks just studying this letter called Ephesians. It's, it's Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we are right now, as Paul begins the letter, in the midst of a eulogy or a praise to God. As the Apostle Paul begins to write, he has taken up in his soul with the glory of God in Christ, just overwhelmed by God's redemptive plans. And this praise, this song of praise, stretches in your Bible, if you have your Bible open, just look at it for a minute, it begins in verse 3 and it ends in verse 14. It's one sentence in the original language. Paul just, you know, rolls one idea after the next, just sort of builds and builds and builds and builds. But if we were to kind of back up from it just a bit, we will see really four main parts to it. The first part is what we considered last week. We ought to praise God for choosing us in Christ. In verses 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul says that the biggest blessing in the heavenly places that has been given to you is that you were chosen by God. And then in verses 7 through 10, what we're going to think about this morning is that we should praise God for redeeming us in Christ. We're going to think about what does that mean that he's redeemed us? Then next week, we're going to consider the third main point of this praise. And as the Apostle Paul praises God for our inheritance in Christ, so there beginning in, in verse 11 through verse 12, we'll see that, that we have an inheritance greater than any inheritance anyone has ever received here on earth. And then lastly, in that final section, beginning there in verse 13 through verse 14, the Apostle Paul invites us to praise God for our eternal security in Christ. Friends, these wonderful truths is what we want to think about this morning as the Father, Son, and Spirit seeks to save a people for his own possession. Let's look here at Ephesians chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, that is the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What a wonderful truth that we're going to consider this morning of what God has done. And of course, the main idea, I've already given it to you, so if you take notes, what's the main idea? Well, as Christians, we continually praise God for redeeming us and uniting us in Christ. Now, I mean, just in planning this service, I was sort of was at a loss. There's so many songs that mention our redemption. And so Christians for 2,000 years have written hymns to praise God for redeeming us. From Fanny Crosby in Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It, uh, to the brothers and sisters at Sovereign Grace who wrote, I will glory my Redeemer, or what we sang last week, come praise and glorify. Hymns that seek to capture this idea of redemption. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to really fuel our praise for God, our praise for God, in, in this particular item. Adding this, that He redeemed us, that He purchased us for His very own possession. And so in these verses, uh, Paul outlines three aspects to our eternal redemption in Christ. So, we're, so if you take notes, there's three main ideas I want us to think about. Number one, the means of our redemption. M-E-A-N-S. Not like you're a mean person, but means. How did he do it? Um, So the means of our redemption. Secondly, we'll look at the basis of our redemption. Uh, So we'll think about the question, well, who qualifies to receive redemption? What, What is the basis that God chose to do this? And then lastly, thirdly, we'll consider the purpose of our redemption. Uh, Sort of the why question. Why did God redeem us? What was the point? Was it just merely to to redeem us or was there something greater going on? And of course the Apostle Paul points us to something much greater than ourselves. So number one, the means of our redemption. Look with me there at verse seven. Again, we'll see the means explicit. In him, again, that's a reference back to verse six at the end, the beloved, The beloved, in the beloved, and that of course is a reference to Christ, in Christ we have redemption, here's the means, through his blood. In other words, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is the means by which we are saved or redeemed. Now the word redemption is a a very important word. It's a Bible word, more importantly. It has its roots in the Old Testament. To redeem something means to purchase it, uh, to free it from slavery. Redemption means to buy back one's freedom from slavery or captivity of war. And of course, the greatest example of redemption in your Bible is that of the Exodus, where last week we pointed to Abraham's election as the tapestry in which God would build upon this aspect or idea of election, 
Here, the the panoramic view shifts in the story of redemption to the nation of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt. Of course, they had been enslaved for a number of years, uh, 400 years, and they had cried out to God for them to be freed, and God raised up a leader named Moses who delivered them from slavery. Here's how Moses put it in Exodus 15, 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Or as the scribes write in 2 Samuel 7, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself? And to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by doing what? By driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You see, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is that he is writing to Gentiles and telling them that you're a part of a bigger story that God has been about for centuries. And you, in chapter 2, we'll see, are being invited into this plan. Look again at verse 7 and notice the verbal aspect. He says, in him we have redemption. Notice he doesn't say that we will have it or we have it presently, but rather we have it historically. In other words, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the present an enduring nature of redemption. It's not something that we're waiting for. It's something that is ours already. And what we do in the in-between is what he says in chapter 4, verse 30, when he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. In other words, you and I live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Already you have been redeemed, and one day we will be redeemed fully. But the point we want to focus on in this particular aspect is the means of our freedom. How was it that God freed us? Well, friend, look here at the text. What does he say? Through his blood. In other words, the atoning sacrifice of Christ was the effective means God used to purchase our freedom. Just as in the nation of Israel, when the death angel was to go out, they were to kill a lamb and paint its blood on the doorpost, just as God provided a means of sacrifice in the Old Testament to atone for sin, so God has provided a once-for-all sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. It was through His blood. The blood of Christ here being a metaphor for the bloody cross of Christ on which Jesus died. This gruesome death was the currency that won your freedom. So you might say, okay, we were slaves, we were in bondage, and He has freed us. Well, there was a payment required to purchase you. And that payment, the currency that was used, was the death of God's own Son. 
just as the author of Hebrews teaches us. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is what we sing so often in that wonderful hymn, His Mercy is More. What riches of kindness He lavished on us, taken right here from this text. His blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. The death of Christ was the payment that won our freedom from sin and death. And you see then the nature of our redemption here in the text is made explicit there in verse 7 through this appositional restatement. Look how he restates redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now he's going to restate it in a different way. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Some translations might use the word sin. The idea here is that a trespass is a willful, disobedient act where we clearly and deliberately disobey a clear command of God. Everyone, the Bible says, is guilty and in need of forgiveness. There's no man that... Aside from Jesus, that was perfect. And Psalm 103 really makes a helpful backdrop to what we're considering. You jot that down, look at it later today, and and you'll see perhaps this is the psalm that, that Paul is reflecting on as he's writing this particular eulogy. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that a good news, friend? Right? We know how sinful we are, more than the person sitting next to us, of course. And he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. Because, brothers and sisters, we all recognize and confess, if God dealt with us according to how we've treated him, Yeah, we would be dead a long time ago. But by grace, right? The psalmist goes on, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friend, one of the wonderful truths of the gospel that we have come to know and believe is that you too can know that your sins, all of your sins, are as far as the east is from the west. This is the truth of the gospel, that that God doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug. He doesn't do that. No, 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 no. You see, what God does is He brings them into the light and He deals with them. How did he deal with them? He dealt with them by punishing, not you, but his own son for your sin. This is the wonderful truth of the Christian gospel this morning. If if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I just encourage you to think more about this reality. The shame and guilt that you feel right now, the heaviness in which you came this morning, you carried in on your own back, friend, it can be gone today like that. 
If you would only trust that Jesus died the death that your sin deserves. That he bore the shame that you feel. And you don't have to be afraid of your sin this morning. Because he forgives sin. That is what God does. That is who he is. I love, of course, hymns. You know that about me. And I think Charles Wesley does it best when he captures, I think, what's going on in this text. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast held in sin and nature's night. I was bound. I I was a slave. I was locked away in a dungeon. Then, right, thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was set free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friend, that is the Christian gospel. We were enslaved to our sin and guilt, and Satan had us locked away, but Christ burst in. And his spirit shone a light upon our our deadness. And he says, you're one of his. He's purchased you. He's redeemed you. You're free. Get out of there. Come out. Walk in the light, friend, this morning. He has bought you. You can be free. Free indeed. Because he saves not because of you or any good that you've done, but because of Jesus This first aspect of our redemption highlights the means by which God used to purchase your redemption. You couldn't pay the sin debt. He paid it. Your debts are paid. And he did it because he is a God of grace. You see, the second aspect that we want to turn our attention to here is the basis of our redemption. You could ask the question this way, what standard did God use to determine who's redeemed? Was it something about them? Was it something that they had done? Was it something that potential in them that they would become something awesome and so he redeemed them? No, I think the Apostle Paul makes this point so explicitly clear in this book. There is absolutely nothing in us that is redeemable. Nothing in us that's redeemable. Before Christ entered our life, we were on a fast train to hell. We were doing everything we could to ruin our lives. Nothing redeemable. Yet by His grace, He saves. The basis of our redemption is God's abundant grace. Look with me again at verse 7 and 8. Look how the Apostle Paul just just overwhelmed. He says this, according to to the riches of His grace. The point here in the text is that of God's abundant grace being the basis. This phrase, according to, means the standard by which something happens. And it hangs off the word redemption. He redeemed, He forgives according to the riches of His grace. Notice the language the Apostle Paul uses the riches of his grace. He uses this monetary language, I believe, to illustrate 
the illustrative and abundant nature of his grace. God's grace is limitless. It never runs out. One might consider, be considered generous if he gives a lot. He helps the poor. He gives a lot at church. He's generous. But what that person is doing is he is giving from his riches. He has riches and he gives. But look again at what the text says about God. God doesn't give from his riches, but he gives according to his riches. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is, is driving home is that he gives according to his abundance and not from his abundance. Take that rich man who gives. No, he gives a few bucks. That's wonderful. What if he gave his house away? What if he gave all of his cars away? What if he, what if he gave everything away? Well, friend, that's giving according to the abundance of your grace. When, when God saves, he empties heaven of grace. A wellspring that we just sang. An unfathomable grace. A, a grace that is unending. This is why the Apostle Paul uses in verse 8 this verb. He lavished upon us grace. I mean, what a picture. What a word picture. He lavished it. He's just like, 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 like a, a mom and dad doting on their favorite child, right? Y'all, I know who you are, right? I'm like, don't you have another kid? Oh, no, no, no. It's, you know, he's the golden child or, or she's the golden child, right? He just lavished upon him. Just, you just lavish. You talk about him all the time. You, you just won't stop about him. It's like, all right, all right, we get it already. They're your kid. You're excited about him. Friends, that is what God does in our redemption. He lavishes upon us grace. And yet, we doubt he could save us. We doubt that, that his grace is sufficient. Friend, God held nothing back when he saved you. God's grace is a well that never runs dry. Friends, this is what he says as much in chapter 2, verse 7. Notice here, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And you thought salvation was all about you? You thought all of this was about you? No, it's about putting on display the grace of God so that anyone who wants to look can see God is amazing because he saved him or her. Notice also that God's grace is according to his wisdom and insight. I think the point here is that the basis is on God and not us. The standard of our salvation is God's grace and not our personal performance. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to stop living as if God is impressed with your personal spiritual development. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. That doesn't mean we don't have work to do, so don't, don't misunderstand. What I'm saying is don't be so overly impressed with what's happening and how God's transforming your life. That is God's plan to redeem you by grace. He saved you by grace. Just as our election in Christ is unconditional, so also God's grace is an unconditional grace. 
We have never, nor will ever, merit God's grace. There's nothing you're ever going to do. There's no amount of prayers prayed, no matter, no, you can read that Bible cover to cover every day of your life. You can give everything that you have, and it will never merit God's grace. His grace is given freely. It's dispensed unconditionally. That's the best news, because I'm pretty messed up, and I, I'm pretty sure you are too, and there's nothing we have to do to earn God's love. And perhaps you're used to earning love in your life. Perhaps you grew up in a home where the only way your parent would love you is if you did something for them. Or the only way your spouse loves you is because you do things for them. Or or your children only love you because of the money you give them or the things you do for them. Friends, that is not the way it is with God. God loves us unconditionally. He bestows His grace on us. But He didn't just throw His grace out willy-nilly. Verse 8 makes clear that it was planned. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and and insight. There There was a purpose in all of this, a plan. He chose to dispense His grace according to His own purpose. It is His to bestow and His to withhold. I think this is the point. As Paul praises God, he recognizes the unmerited nature by which God has done His work. His grace, you could say it this way, is an enlightening grace. That's what Wesley was seeking to capture. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. He was in a dungeon. He didn't know he was. He was locked up. He, he didn't really, and not until the light shone on there, and he's like, holy cow, I'm in, a, I'm in a prison. I'm a slave. I thought I was free. I thought I had free will. I thought I could do whatever I want. And Wesley's like, ah, no, I'm actually a slave here. Your spirit is, is diffused a quickening eye. I can see now. I'm a slave. And he is the only one who can free. Once you were not enlightened, but now you understand. Once you were blind, and now you see. That's one of the wonderful stories in John's gospel, in John chapter 9. You know, he's, this, this blind man, Jesus heals him, gives him his eyesight. Right? He can see again. And all the Pharisees want to know is like, how did he do it? What, what things did he say? What, how did this happen? How did this come about? And the, and the blind man is says, I don't know. I'm no theologian. But I do know this. One thing I do know, I woke up this morning blind, and now I can see. You know, sometimes as Christians, we get obsessed with, you know, how the cake is baked. And that's some of what Paul's doing right here is talking about how the cake's baked. When we just need to stand back and say, that's an amazing cake. Sometimes we get caught in the details of this glorious gospel and we forget that we're saved by grace through faith. Again, Wesley, and then can it be, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. His mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. It found me. That's what God's grace did to you, didn't it? It found you. You weren't looking for it. You weren't stumbling your way to God. You were locked away in a prison. But His grace found you. And He freed you. 
This is the most freeing truth that you and I will, will ever live with as Christians. To know that our relationship with God is based solely on Him and not us. It is a freeing truth. That the basis of our redemption is His grace. But why? Why did He redeem you? Why did He redeem anyone? Why did God do what He did? Well, the Apostle Paul ends in verse 9 and 10 with the climax. He has been driving the whole praise. This is the climax. This is the, this is the top of Mount Everest of praise. This is the, the highest peak. This is, the, this is that distant mountain that we've been driving towards. Why did he do it? To unite all things in Christ. In other words, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Father's work and the Spirit's work is all about Jesus, making much of Jesus. Look what he says. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. When the, when the time was ripe, when, when it was the exact moment, the, 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 the right milliseconds, to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. He's not about remaking Eden. He is about re, he's about making something new. A new heaven and a new earth. Where angelic beings and powerful creatures are united with humanity under the headship of Jesus. God had planned to do this work of redemption long ago. Notice that the Apostle Paul says that our redemption in Christ is about making known to us the mystery of His will. In other words, no one would have figured this out. No one would have guessed, ah, I've got it figured out. This is what God's going to do. This is how He's going to redeem. This is what He's up to. No, He uses this word mysterion here. It is the mystery of His will. Not a mystery in, in the sense that it can't be figured out, but rather a mystery in that it was hidden and then has now been disclosed. The Apostle Paul is seeking to make a few points here. Number one, that no one could have figured this out apart from revelation. Apart from revelation. Secondly, to emphasize the point that salvation is God's work from beginning to end. It's His plan. <laughs> Right? We're not working our plan out. We're working his plan out. He is working his plan out. That's, that's what he says, isn't it? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. He's got a plan. The gospel was God's idea, not man's. Meaning that it's not dependent on man. It's not dependent on us. God is about working out his redemption. And I think also here Paul is building on the teaching of this union in Christ of Jews and Gentiles. This is what he's going to take up in chapter 2. I mean, think about in the context. You're, you're, you're a Gentile in Ephesus. The Jews have been hounding you about circumcision and laws and all these things. Apostle Paul sends you a letter. And he, and he says, hey, all the things that they once had has now been given to you. You've been included in God's plan. Someone often asks, you know, did the church replace Israel? 
No, I don't believe the church replaced Israel. I think Jesus replaced Israel. He is the new Israel. He is the, the where, where Israel failed, when, when they rebelled, Jesus obeyed. He is the new Israel. And those that are united to him receive the same benefits as those who were given to Israel. You see, your redemption reveals the great Redeemer. The reason God redeems anyone is to put on display his glory. You see, it's more about who than what God has done. Therefore, we're not surprised to learn that the nature of our redemption is more about God than it really is about us. Think about how strategic it is for just a moment when God saved you. Right now, you might consider a family that you know is lost. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend, maybe, maybe someone in your life. Imagine what happens if the mom gets saved and the mom starts talking about Jesus in her home and sharing the gospel with her husband and he gets saved. And then the, ki- the kids, they get in on this too. And, and, and they, they start hearing about God's amazing love for them in Christ and they, they get saved. Well, well, what's just happened? Where God was unknown, he has became known. You see, that's God's strategic plan. It's really a simple plan. It's not about big mass evangelism. It's about small and subtle implementation of the gospel in a community. Friends, we can take over this community if we would just be faithful to share the gospel with the people we come in contact with every day. We don't need to put on an event and attract people to that. No, no, no. You see, God has strategically redeemed you and put you in the lives, in the paths of the people around you so that your mouth would be open to tell them about Jesus. I mentioned this last week. Friend, it is no accident that your kids are the way that they are. It's no accident that your sister's unbelieving. So he saved you so that you could tell the gospel to your sister, your aunt, your uncle, whoever it is, your coworker, your neighbor. There's no accidents. We need to get busy displaying the glory of God through this wonderful truth. See, redemption unites all things in Christ. That's what he's about. As he brings this to a climax, the point is that God is uniting all things in Christ. That everything is about Jesus bringing reconciliation Global reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation between man and between God. Mathematicians often refer to the bottom line, the sum total of some mathematical problem. Of course, accountants talk about the bottom line at the end of the day. What's the sum total? Friends, the sum total of all of God's work of redemption is right here in our text. Verse 10. That he would put up Jesus as the glorious display of his goodness and grace. Or what was made explicit in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that Christ is preeminent over all things. Our redemption causes us to reveal God's eternal purposes. You know, we don't need to put billboard signs on the side of highways that say Jesus. I always thought those were weird. I don't, I don't know what that is accomplishing. There's Jesus' name on the side of the road. Big green sign, Jesus. Or, you're all going to hell. Repent and believe. That's encouraging. Thank you. 
Repent and believe what? I'm driving 75 miles an hour down the road. I need to know more, but I can't. You see, that's not how we communicate the gospel. However well-meaning that is, I believe it was done with good motive. You see, you and I are little billboards in the lives of the people around us to display the name of Jesus. Simply put, you are a part of God's plan of fulfilling this glorious truth. That he is at work to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. As Christians, we should continually praise God for redeeming us in Christ. For redeeming us according to the riches of his grace. He has done it through the atoning work of Christ. He's done it for, by grace, and He's done it for His glory. And in every finely crafted symphony comes a point, the crescendo. It's what every note written on the page was driving towards. It's what everything was moving, every beat, every note, every instrument. They're not individuals playing their own little tunes. They're all driving at one main thing. The consummation of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, is the crescendo of God's work of redemption. All of God's work, from before the first molecule was formed to the generation after generation that has turned and trusted in Him is all a part of that great tapestry of grace whereby God is about redeeming a people for His very own special possession. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful truth it is. We have a feeling sense of our own unworthiness of this. We did not deserve it. That is for sure. But nonetheless, you have redeemed us. You have purchased us. We are now yours to live for your glory. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work. For the praise of your glorious grace. Father, our prayer is simply that you would build your church around this truth. That we would be busy displaying this glorious truth to those around us and making much of Jesus' name until you come to unite all things in heaven and on earth. For your glory and our good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.